as a young boy, I loved Jesus with all my heart. I remember one day we were driving to Apison School, or Apison Church, I think it was, where we were going to at the time, and my heart was just full with a love for God and a love for Jesus. I could not wait until Jesus' second coming. But over time, things began to shift and change in my life. Other things began to fill that desire for God, and it got replaced with a fascination for outdoor sports and outdoors activities. I would go backpacking over the weekend and just would revel in nature and somehow miss in my mind that there was a God over this nature. I loved being in nature. I loved climbing on cliffs and rappelling off of cliffs and doing remote wilderness backpacking, and yet my connection with God slipped further and further away. I remember being on a job. I was building houses at the time. I was a carpenter, and I was up in the rafters, and I could see out through the trees, the treetops, and I remember thinking in my mind, I can see how this just evolved, how it grew up from mollusks to whatever was the next life form, and eventually it evolved further and further. Yeah, I can see how this world just came to be. In my mind, I was shifting away from a belief in a literal God that created this world to the idea that this world created itself. And then one day, I heard on the news that there was a storm brewing down uh, in the Gulf. And this storm, I don't remember the exact track, but it hit the coast and went over New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina ravaged the United States of America in the southern part. My brother and I um, decided that we would get our tools together and, and we had some friends that were with us and we decided to go down and help clear up the debris that was left over from Hurricane Katrina. We went down to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and on the way we saw unbelievable sight. Mile after mile after mile of pine forests had been sheared off about eight feet high like a lawnmower had cut them. The trees were completely gone and it was just their stumps sticking up mile after mile of stumps of pine trees. I was amazed and thought the power that was behind this is incredible. But it got worse. We got down to Hattiesburg. Houses were wrecked and demolished. Trees were all over them. We began to clear the trees off of the houses and repair the roofs. And we heard things were worse further south, down in Waveland. And so we decided to make the trip down. We had packed a 55-gallon drum of diesel in the, in, the, in the trailer because we weren't sure if we could buy fuel or not, and we wanted to be able to make sure we could make it back out. So we began the trip down to Waveland. And on the way, we were shocked with what we saw. Along the road for miles, there were cars parked on the side of the road. They were headed north, and for some reason, they were parked there. I don't know if they ran out of gas. I don't know if water overcame them. I'm not sure what happened. No one was there in the cars, but there were cars, like parking lots, down the side of the road, and we were driving. There was twisted signs, signs bent over, uh, the stub of signs completely gone, gas stations, mangled wrecks. We arrived down in Waveland, the police were there, we had to make our way through some roadblocks, and we were headed towards the coast. We were about a mile away from the coast when we saw something unbelievable. There was a mountain, literally a mountain that the road went through, a mountain of debris, of houses, whole houses stacked on top of each other, wood, debris, all piled up in these huge mounds on each side of us. It was a massive mound of houses and debris, and then all of a sudden, there was nothing. The trees were gone. It was barren, and we were just driving on this road, and there was just foundations here and there. We got up to the coast, and we got out of the truck, and we were walking around, and I remember this one foundation, that the house was gone. The block was gone. The, the concrete was torn, you could see. There was, there was steel sticking up out of it. Everything had been ripped away except for the concrete footers that, that, that had held the house. The power of the storm was incredible. We looked out across the bay, and there we could see the, the road that used to go across on the bridge. And the bridge, 
Uh, most of it across there, the, the bridge was just gone. It had the piling sticking up, but there were some sections where it, the, the, the bridge that spanned from one piling to, the, to another had come loose and fallen off on one side, and you could just see them stacked there. The immensity of the power of what we faced was incredible. And it caused me and others to think, wow, there must be a greater power in this world than we realize. There must be a God. I want to look at that subject with you today, what the Bible says about God, the Godhead, or some refer to this as the Trinity, and we're going to go look at a story in Exodus, we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11, and we're going to see three things in this story. We're going to see the inner law that God has placed in our hearts, we're going to see how God is revealed in nature, and we're going to see how God reveals himself personally. So come with me as we go to Exodus chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. What was it that caused Moses to kill this man? He saw one of his own people being abused by someone else, and he felt this was not fair. Why would Moses feel this was not fair? Because God had placed in Moses, and not only Moses, but all of us, a law, a moral law, that says there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Now, if we were outside, and, or if Moses had been walking along a cliff, and a rock had come off the top of the cliff and killed his, his uh, fellow member of the Israelite nation, would he have felt a burden to kill the rock? No, he wouldn't have felt a burden to kill the rock because the rock didn't do anything wrong. It's an inanimate object. So we see here there's a difference between natural law and moral law. In natural law, there isn't right or wrong. A rock isn't evil because it kills someone. But in moral law, we see that there is a responsibility of a human being towards another to treat them fairly. Ah, but there we go. What is fairly. How do we determine what is fair and what is not fair? Let's continue with our story. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, why did Pharaoh seek to kill Moses? Well, in a land that is governed by laws and rules, you cannot have simply one person that's offended killing another person when they think it's wrong. So Moses had stepped outside of the bounds of the law and had taken the matters into his own hands and killed someone else. So Pharaoh determined by looking into the situation that what was done was wrong and he was going to kill him in return for that. He had a moral compass in his mind that he was working from, and he determined that what Moses had done was wrong and punishable by death. So we have Moses seeing a wrong, and he determines it's wrong and takes matters into his own hands and kills someone. Pharaoh sees a wrong, and he decides to take matters into his own hands and kill someone. Each person has in their own mind a law that they think right. And they are willing to stand for it insofar as to take another person's life. So we see here that there is an inner law within us, but it can be contradictory about which is the right law. You have a law that you feel is right, and you see perspectives that you see. I have a law that I think is right, and I see perspectives that I see. So there has to be some standard beyond our own opinions about what is right and wrong. We can see that God has placed a law within us, It's true, and this gives evidence that there is a law giver. If there is a moral law within man, there must be a moral law giver. This isn't a natural thing that would have evolved because there's a difference between moral law and natural law. So we see that God has placed this law within us and that there is a moral law, but there must be some standard beyond us. 
there has to be a standard that the moral law, give, moral, law, moral law giver gives to us so we can know what is right and wrong. So we see the first point as we're looking at the story is that we can know that there is a God by, based on the inner law that he's placed within each one of us. Let's continue with our story here. Verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now it says here in the story that God remembered the covenant with Abraham. What does the covenant of Abraham have to do with the people of Israel in slavery? Well, it's just this. In Genesis chapter 15, God made a promise to Abraham, and he told him what would happen. Let's look at it on the screen together. Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. Then he, God, said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. So right here, in the midst of the covenant that God made with Abraham, he said that his descendants would be soldiers in a land, and they would be afflicted for a period of time. After that period of time, something would happen. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. So we have here that God would not leave them in this condition forever. Moses must have in his mind, when he went to defend, and kill, defend the Israelite and kill the Egyptian, been thinking, God intends to deliver the children of Israel. And he looked this way, and he looked that way, and then he killed them. He did not look up. He did not look to see God's guidance in the matter. He chose what was in his own heart. He looked at the scripture to see that God had a plan for him, but he did not look at the, at the God of the scripture for guidance in carrying that out. Now we're going to go on to chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now it says that Moses was in the wilderness and he came to the mountain of God. What is it in nature that leads us to think about God? I know when I'm in the mountains and, and these lofty mountains are sticking up around me, particularly out west in Colorado, the Rocky Mountains, I think of God. Many people think of God when they're out and see God in nature. What is it that can be seen of God in nature? Well, as you go out in your yard and you see the, the green grass that's growing, you can think of a God that loves softness and beauty. When you see the different colors of flowers that are all around, you think of a creative God who loves beauty. When you see the, the, <laughs> the tornadoes sweep through, you think of a God of power. When you see this world from a distance, this blue orb, you think of a God who is a creator God. When you think of a shepherd taking care of the sheep, you think of a tender father. Nature can lead us to think about God. Now, we read in Romans, thank you, Angela, for reading that for us today, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The invisible things of God we cannot see, but we can see the things that are around us. The things in nature lead us to understand and to know and to believe that there is God. Nature doesn't prove exactly that God exists. It assumes it. It, it, it insinuates it. It shows that there is a creator if you are looking for this. We are without excuse. It doesn't matter if you have a Bible or don't have a Bible. If you are in the middle of um, some remote area of the world, there is nature all around you, calling the mind to the fact that there is a God that created these things. Now, there comes a danger. If we don't have the scriptures, we can't understand the revelation of God himself. We might begin to worship the things in nature instead of God himself, 
Paul gave a warning of this in Acts chapter 17 and verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. That is a danger. We begin to shift in our thinking and make a God out of nature. So let's continue here in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses had an inner law that caused him to recognize there was a God. Moses had nature all around him that called his mind up to the fact that there is a God, a creator. But Moses could not understand and know the will of that God without God revealing that to him. It wasn't Moses' job to decide what his God would be like. It wasn't Moses' job to tell God what he was to be like. The only way for Moses to know about God is for God to reveal himself to him. And that is the only way we can know about God, is for him to reveal himself to us. Now, it's interesting. There are so many ideas about what God is like and what God isn't like. And a lot of them are not scriptural. In fact, there is a group of people that, that are against the idea of the Godhead or against the idea of the, of the Trinity, not based on what the Bible says, but based on what other religions say. They say, well, the Catholic religion says there's three people in the Godhead, and the Catholic religion can't be true, and so therefore, I won't believe in that. And I won't worship with anyone who believes in that, and I won't even pray with them if they believe that. Instead of saying, well, let's just see what the Bible says. They base their beliefs on what other religions have to say and say, I don't believe that. Or they'll base their religion on what the forefathers have to say. The only way we can truly know what the Godhead is like is to come to Scripture and let the Scripture speak. Let God tell us what he's like. Now, here's the rub. Here's the issue. Is that I am a human and God is God, which means I am not God. I cannot wrap my mind around his completeness, who he is, or I would be equal to him. There has to be some point which I come up to the, the mountain of God and realize that he is bigger than I, that there's some parts of God I will never understand. I can only understand what he has revealed to me. Let's look at what it says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So there's parts of God we can't understand, the secret things. But what he has revealed of himself, aha, now we can know this is what God is like. Our mind has to surrender itself to the revelation of God. Human reason can't fully explain God nor wrap itself around God. Human reason has to bow itself before the Almighty God and recognize that reason cannot explain God. In fact, there are parts of God that we probably cannot reason and explain, we just have to accept. If he says this about himself, that seems to be contradictory about this from himself, we just have to recognize that we don't understand and we have to let that be. Okay, so now I want to go through the scripture with you and, and look at what God has revealed himself, about himself. Now this is not an exhaustive study of the scripture and it's not an exhaustive explanation of who God is. When, when I think of this carpet that I'm standing up on here, there's all these little carpet hairs all over. And, and my understanding of God is probably like one little carpet hair among the millions of carpet hairs here. There's so much of God that I don't understand, and I have to recognize that. I just have to come and be humble before this subject as we seek to understand the Godhead. Now, we're going to look at some scriptures here together on the screen. Deut Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is 
one Lord. So we can say that this gives us an idea. God is revealing to us about himself. He is one Lord. He is one God. Okay, so we can put that here on a shelf. This is something he has revealed. He is one. Let's look at another text, Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. So we can see that from these two texts, there is one God, there is one Lord. There isn't a plurality of gods, there is one God. So that's something we can put here that we can understand. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and let's see what the scripture has to say. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So before anything was created here on this planet, the Spirit of God was here, moving. He was a part of the creation story. The Spirit of God was here. Now we move on to verse 26, and we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. I'm looking up on the screen. Are you seeing that highlighted there, Brandon? The, the, okay, all right, I can't see it on the back, so I'm just making sure you can see it there as I'm speaking to you. Okay, and God said, let us, let us make man in our image. So wait a minute. We read in Deuteronomy that there is one Lord, that there is only one God, and now here, God of himself is saying, let us make man in our image. Now, when you say us, you're saying at least two people, at, at minimum two. That's plural. It can't be one. It has to be two. Now, God said, let us make man in our image. So we have God and we have the Spirit at least here in the creation story. So there's two. There's two within the Godhead. He's one and yet at minimum two. I don't understand this, but I accept that I'm a human and my reason cannot wrap itself around God and what God reveals about himself has to be what it is. Let's continue, Genesis 11, verse seven. Come, let us go down, and they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So again, there is this idea of plurality of God involved in human affairs. Let us go down. Isaiah 42, verse one. Behold my servant, whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen. So we have the servant, and we have the one who is upholding the servant. We have two here. Continuing, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, this Isaiah 42 is clearly a reference to Jesus, and the one who is upholding him is clearly the Father, and the spirit is referred to here. There is three referred to in this text, the servant, the one who upholds, and the spirit on who, who is put upon him. There is three. Now, I don't really understand all of this, how God is one, and yet he is three, but the scriptures communicates that. Now, this is not the only text throughout the scripture. We have others as well. Let's look at Matthew 3. This is at Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened uh, to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we see clearly three elements here. There's Jesus, who was being baptized. There's the Spirit of God descending like a body, descending like a dove. And then above it all is a voice from heaven, the Father, who says, this is my beloved Son. We have three, Jesus, the Spirit, the Father. In fact, when Jesus left, his final message to his church was to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now the scriptures clearly teaches there is three within the Godhead, and yet the scriptures clearly teaches that there is one God. I don't really understand this. God has given us a little glimpse in Genesis 2 that kind of helps us understand this a little bit more. Genesis 2 and verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So we have here two individuals, but it says they are one flesh. Two individuals and one flesh. 
Now, my wife has her own mind, very much so. And I have my own mind. We are different individuals, but the Bible says the two of us are one. When you think of faith, you think of Chris. When you think of Chris, you think of faith. The two of us are one flesh. And this is, must be the same with, with God. He is one God, not a plurality of gods, but there are three persons within the Godhead. Now, I don't really understand all of that, but I feel comfortable with that. I feel completely okay with the fact that I don't understand all of God, and I can't explain all of Him, but I can feel confident that the Scriptures talks about three persons and one God, and that is what I believe. That's exactly what I believe. There are three persons and one God, and all of them are involved in redeeming mankind. They each have parts they play and differences of actions, but they are one in mind and thought and purpose. I hope we're still friends after that. It's okay. We can even pray together, believing in these three. No problem. Now, I want to look at a few more scriptures together with you and highlight just some attributes of God. Here we go. 1 John 3.20 says that God knows all things. So here's an attribute of God. There is nothing he doesn't know. If you just had a new thought, don't worry. God thought of it a long time ago. He thought of you before you were born. He loved you before you came into existence. He had a plan for your life. God knows everything. Another attribute of God. He declares the end from the beginning. This makes logical sense. If he knows all things, he knows what will come to pass, and he knows what always has been. There's nothing that escapes his mind. He knows all things. That's why prophecy is one of the best indications that God exists. If he says something is going to come to pass, and it does, it's evidence that God exists. I love Bible prophecy. Now, Hebrews 4.13 tells us there is no creature hidden from his sight. If you go to the bottom of the ocean, God knows you are there. If you go up to space in the moon or some spacecraft, God knows you are there. In fact, God is present everywhere. God is not limited by space and time. He can be everywhere at the same time. There was no creature hidden from his sight. It says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, that God alone has immortality. He is the only one who has life within himself, and he has given that life to all living beings. God alone has immortality. Now, this thought leads us to the next scripture, which is mind-blowing. I just, every time I start thinking about it too far, my brain short circuits. Let's look at this. That God is from everlasting to everlasting. If you went back in time as far as you can go and, you, and just keep thinking further and further and further back, a million years ago, a billion years ago, a, whatever the next one is a, year, a trillion years ago, et cetera, et cetera, God has always been there. There is never a time that he has not been. Now, my brain at some point short circuits. I can't really understand that. But that's what the scripture said. He has always been. He's the only thing that has always been there, the uncaused cause. He has caused all things to be. But he's also from too everlasting. Now, I can understand this a little better. He will always be. Oh, yeah, I can understand that. From here forward, God is always there. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Now, here's another key, critical, important aspect of God that is often missed and overlooked. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. When we think about anything in the scripture that has to do with God's relating to mankind, it is love. Now that's hard to accept. It's hard to rationalize at times. There's stuff in the scriptures that seems hard. But it's not because God isn't loving. It's because our conception of love is distorted. It's twisted. It's perverted. But God demonstrates what real, genuine love looks like. God is love. Now, there's one other aspect of God that I want to speak about here. I find this comforting when I think of it and concerning all at the same time. This is in Psalms 111, verse 7. The works of his hands are truth and justice. God is truth. In fact, the scripture tells us, we'll look here in just a minute, it is impossible for God to lie. God is truth. 
there, Satan winds a deceptive path and confuses us about what God is like, but God is always true and truth. In fact, in order for God to be love, he must always be true. It's not love to lie. God is truth. Now, the second word there is justice. This is the part I find comforting and concerning all at the same time. I find it comforting. Have you ever been wronged? Have you been mistreated? Have people treated you unfairly? You can trust that God will be a God of justice. He will repay all for what they have done. There is not a single thing that has been thought, spoken, or done that God will not hold them accountable. God is a God of justice. But then when I turn and think inward and about the poor decisions I've made in my life and the unkind things I've done, God is a God of justice to me. But praise God, Jesus paid the price that I might have and you might have forgiveness and freedom from that guilt. It's impossible for God to lie. There are those who come up with these conundrums trying to find some way to trick God. Is there a rock that God make? Can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? And they play these little mind games as though somehow they're smarter than God by coming up with a, with a silly saying. But there is something that's impossible for God to do, and it's impossible for God to lie. Why is that? Because he is truth, and also his word has creative power. When God speaks, it happens. God can't lie, because if he said Chris was a pink elephant, I would become a pink elephant. He couldn't lie about it because it would happen. God's word is true, and it has power to create. Okay, let's go to back to Exodus 3 and look at our story. We've looked at these key aspects of who God is and his key attributes. We've looked at these things together and these define who God is. But let's continue. Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place that I have chosen for them. God was coming to be the deliverer of those who were oppressed. That's who God was. Moses was wondering, who is this God? He had misunderstood the character of God and he had not patiently waited on the timing of God and he had killed someone and become a murderer. His conceptions of God shaped how he related to the world. Our conceptions of God shape how we relate to others. We need to have a clear, correct true understanding of the character of God because that's how we relate to others and that's how others through our actions understand God. Moses was giving a distorted picture of God based on how he was interacting with the Egyptians. God was coming as a deliverer for the oppressed. In fact, I'm convinced that God wanted to deliver Pharaoh. Let's go to verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that's a strange name. I am. Jesus used this in John 8:48 about himself. He said, before Abraham was, I am. The I am, the always present God. As far to the future as you can go, God is there. As far to the past as you can go, God is there. Whatever circumstance you're facing, God is there. The always present, always existing, eternal God is there. The I am. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said. I will be with you till the end of the world, Jesus said. The I am is the God you're to tell them has sent you. Now some people get hung up on God's name and they say you have to say it just a certain way because if you say it wrong, then you're not really talking to the true God, you're talking to the false God. Now I, 
I can get the thought, but uh, God, God is referred to in so many ways in the scriptures. And in fact, the, the exact name of God we don't really know because the Hebrews were concerned that they would say his name wrong. And they took the vowels out of the consonants and we only have the consonants. We don't even know how to say it. It's the tetragrammaton, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. And so they took the, the word Adonai and they took the vowels from Adonai and they put it in the tetragrammaton so that we could try to come up with a, with a way to say God. So we say Jehovah or Yahweh or Jehovah. And there are those who are, are hung up on this. You have to say God's name just a certain way or you're, or you're referring to the wrong God. Um, God is referred to by his attributes. If we don't know exactly how to say his name. I can't imagine he's going to be offended. Peter, when he was falling into the water, said, Lord, save me. He cried out this simple word, save me. God knows our needs, and he's not necessarily concerned that we understand how to pronounce his name in a specific way. In fact, in Exodus 34, God proclaims, the name of Mo, uh, God proclaims his name to Moses up in the mountain. We read this in Exodus 34, and verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on those trespassers. So here, God describes his name in terms of a character, merciful, loving, abundant in goodness. God's name is who he is, not a specific pronunciation. In fact, we can even call him Father according to Jesus. So no worries there. All right, going back to Exodus chapter three. The I am is the God who you're to tell them has sent you. Let's move forward to Exodus chapter five. Moses has come to Egypt. He's come up before Pharaoh. And we, we read here in verse one. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse two, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He was saying, who is the Lord that I should be willing to let him go? Now, at this moment, Pharaoh was confessing his honest condition. He did not really know God, and he did not, was not willing to submit to him. Now, if God was like Moses was 40 years before, God would have just killed him and buried him in the sand. But the God we serve is gentle. He's kind. He's loving. He's compassionate. God wanted to free Pharaoh from the superstitions that Satan had clouded his mind with and wanted him to understand the true God that would deliver him. I'm convinced that God wanted to deliver, to, to, to deliver Pharaoh. In fact, we're told in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wanted to work on Pharaoh's heart. So he sent him one plague, a gentle one. He just turned the water to blood so that he could show Pharaoh that the river is not your God. The God who turned it to blood is the true God. He gently worked on him, and then he brought another plague, and then another plague, and another plague, and he kept gently pushing him more and more. Now, God does the same with us. In our life, if there's things that we're not willing to submit to him, if we're not willing to um, follow as he's leading, he gently guides us, like a shepherd guides his sheep, pushing and gently pushing until he gets our attention. But Pharaoh became more and more resistant. Now, I think this story illustrates a powerful truth. In the, in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that there was one tree they could not eat from, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This tree gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to, to follow God or to reject him. This gave them free moral choice. Like a flagpost planted in the Garden of Eden right there, God declares mankind has free choice. In fact, for God to be love, he has to give us free choice. He can't force love. It has to be given. God was seeking to win Pharaoh's heart.
that he might be free. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. The scripture tells us further on that God hardened his heart, but God hardened his heart only in that he did things to soften his heart. And Pharaoh is the one that responded with a hardened heart. He gave us free moral will. Now we come up all the way to the 10th plague. And this 10th plague seems pretty hard. In fact, it was. Now if you are a shepherd that loves your sheep, would you just stand to the side if there was a wolf or a bear and allow it to come eat all the sheep that it wanted until its belly was full and its, and its lips were grinning and it walked away? Could you truly say that you loved your sheep if you allowed that to happen? No. You have to stop the wolf. You have to kill the wolf. You have to kill the bear. There is a moment in where love actually takes a strong sand and a life is ended. There's a truth. I think you can all agree with me there. We don't fully understand why or how, but there are moments in Scripture where God takes the life of another. And we have to understand, if God is love, then this act of taking a life is somehow loving. Through this, God is seeking to preserve others from the wolf, from the destroyer, Satan. And in the fifth plague, the firstborn of the children of Egypt were slain. Those who were not covered by the blood. This was an act of love, seeking to call to their mind that unless they too were covered by the blood of the Lamb, they would likewise perish. The children of Israel were delivered they were taken from Pharaoh's presence. They were taken through the Red Sea. Pharaoh perished because of the hardness of his heart in the sea. The children of Israel came to the Mount Sinai and God gave them there his law. Let's look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20 and verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. When they came into God's presence, when they heard the law being read, their hearts were afraid. Now the Bible tells us perfect love casts out fear. Why is it their hearts were afraid? Because they didn't really understand God. Now there is a part about God that we do need to be respectful about. He is not simply a, golden, a heavenly golden retriever that we um, throw a ball and we play with. He is the God of gods, the King of kings. We need to be respectful in his presence. And yet he is also love embodied. They were afraid. They did not really understand who God was. God wanted them, them to know him intimately, deeply. He wanted them to understand his heart. And they reached a point they could not go any further. They were afraid. So Moses was sent in. Now the scripture tells us in 1 John 5, verse 20 and 21, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Jesus has come to help us understand God. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus came to give us a full and complete and clear picture of what God is like. It's interesting, this next verse, verse 21. John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's interesting he says that because after Exodus chapter 20, we go on a little bit further and the children of Israel make a idol, a golden calf because they did not like the picture of God they had come to see. They wanted to make their own God instead of accepting the revelation of himself. Do we do the same? Do we come up with our own God instead of allowing Jesus to reveal what he is truly like? I want to look at scripture with you, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Jesus is revealing what the Father is like. Have this mind in you which was in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus revealed 
that God is not seeking to put himself over humanity and force humanity to worship him. He showed us what the character of God is really like, where he emptied himself of all, humbled himself, and became a servant. Now, when you achieve a position of power, what is it that you do with that? Do you begin to control other people? Does it come to your head? Do you become, uh, um, you get a big head because of this? God shows us what real power is like. He emptied himself and he became a servant. We see this in John chapter 13 where Jesus put a towel around his waist, got down and washed the disciples' feet. God in human flesh wiping their feet. Luke 23 gives us a powerful glimpse into what God is like. Luke 23 and verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. God, the one who spoke this world into existence, the one who formed Adam and Eve, the one who breathed into Adam the breath of life, the one who guided his people throughout ages, the illimitable God, the creator of heavens and earth, was crucified on a cross. One arm and the other pressed into the wood, a steel spike set on top and driven through his hands and then his feet. This cross was lifted up and dropped into a hole. His body hit the bottom of that hole, and he, or as the cross hit the hole, his body would, would have pressed into those spikes. A crown of thorns was on his head, bleeding. But that wasn't even the worst of it. Your sin and my sin was placed upon him. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God nailed to a cross. It says in verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is a picture of what God is like. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, but not all have been chosen, have chosen to have been saved. Not all are saved, but all can be saved. John 14, verse 9. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. See him nailed to the cross? Do you see the blood dripping from his side and his hands and his feet? This is a revelation of who God is. One of the most beautiful pictures in all the Bible is in Revelation chapter 5. The question is asked, who is worthy to open these scrolls? Verse 2. And no one in heaven or on earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. How has this lion of the tribe of Judah conquered? Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all, all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense with the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, 
Worthy are you to open the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people, nations, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign. Why was the lamb worthy? Why were those saying he was worthy? Because he was slain. Verse 11, then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that in them is saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. This is God. This is why he's worthy. Because he demonstrated what he is truly like. He showed love in action. And when that rude cross was lifted up before the world, we saw God as he is, a God of love. Revelation 18 verse 1 tells us that there will be a mighty angel that will cry in this world and there will be a loud cry. Let's go there. Revelation 18 verse 1. And after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great power and the earth was made bright with his glory. At the end of time, there will be a picture, a revelation of Jesus that will clarify and dispel the, the, the fog that Satan has put about the character of God. The character of God will be revealed and Jesus will be seen in clarity around this world. I want to be a part of that end time movement that uplifts God as he is, not as I want him to be. That end time movement who points to Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus, your Redeemer and mine.